It's the Book and Film Globe podcast, and I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe and the greatest living American writer. You can find Book and Film Globe at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. If my voice sounds a little strange this week, it's because my ears are more clogged than your feed of streaming shows that you need to watch. I've been having some difficulties with that, but I can sort of hear and I can sort of talk and we're going to bring this content to you because that's how dedicated we are to podcasting excellence. I want to give a special shout out to our listeners in the free and independent country of Taiwan, which has made us the number 10 most listened to entertainment podcast in the country. And I'm very proud of that. I appreciate it. I've never been to Taiwan, but maybe maybe you're going to invite me to your next big podcasting conference. I will gladly come. Taiwanese food is extremely good, and I want to taste it there. Now, what do we have this week? We have a discussion of the new Netflix documentary series, Harry and Meghan. Matthew Ehrlich will be here with some very hilarious observations about that. And we're also going to talk about Wednesday, which is a Adam's Family spin-off series on Netflix. Paula Schaefer will join me to discuss Wednesday. But first, Stephen Garrett is here to discuss with me what Sight and Sound magazine, a new poll, has named as the greatest movie of all time. It is a three and a half hour film exploring the sad and difficult life of a Belgian widow in 1975. Jean Dielman will be the topic of filmic discussion among film people for the rest of time, and certainly today on the podcast. Stephen Garrett will be right back to talk with me about that. The once-a-decade sight and sound critics and directors poll came out last week. That is the sort of benchmark for determining what the greatest film of all time is. Uh, and in the past, I grew up thinking that Citizen Kane was the greatest film of all time because it topped the sight and sound list like six decades in a row. And in 2012, I think Citizen Kane was second and Vertigo was the greatest film of all time. However, there's a surprise in this year's list. This year, we learned that the greatest film of all time is a 1975 experimental Belgian feminist movie directed by Chantal Ackerman, Jean Dielman, 23K du Commerce, 1080 Bruxelles. That is now the greatest film of all time. Uh, it has engendered a lot of debate because most film critics had heard of this movie or seen this movie. And, you know, certain cineasts in the world had seen this movie. It's, it, 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 was, it was sitting there on my Criterion Collection app, all three hours and 21 minutes of it just kind of taunting me for years. And it, it always is a movie that it's always been in the top 10, at least since it came out on that poll. It's not like this came out of nowhere, like no one had seen it, and it's suddenly the greatest film of all time. But I was surprised. I'm like, okay, let's, let's watch this movie. And I did. I, as we're talking, I watched it last night. And uh, and I, I don't know. I mean, sure, it's the greatest film of all time. I don't know. Stephen Garrett is here. You've seen this. You've seen this movie a couple of times. It was. I think it's literally two times. It is a couple. The first it was assigned to me in my. That's a lot of hours. Nearly seven hours. Yeah. Um, it was, of course, assigned to me in a cinema studies class, which I think is the main way most of the people who have seen that, uh, including the people who probably put it on this poll. I'm sure it was their first exposure to. This is not 
a commercial release uh, type of film. This is this is this is hardcore art house. You know, you see it in an academic setting, or you see it in a revival house for the one or two days that it plays. Or um, and it isn't. Or it's or you see it on the oh, Criterion Collection app. I'm sorry, that's true. That's true. I keep forgetting. Yes, I mean Criterion really. Uh, really helped i'm sure the uh, the renown of the film by actually making it accessible which is you know a vital part of any canon um it's the dirty little secret of any canon that uh, distribution is really the main reason why a film actually stays in the public eye and in people's imaginations and in the conversation right well, i i appreciated being able to watch uh jean dealman uh at home in in the privacy of of my office i because I, I could snarkily text with friends about it while I was watching it. plenty <laughs> of opportunity to do so. I mean, you, you have like five, six minute scenes of a woman washing the dishes from behind. You don't even see her face. You're watching her back meticulously washing dishes. She's making, peeling potatoes. She's making meatloaf. She's pow- pounding the schnitzel as it were. Um, there's all kinds of like, walking in and out of rooms, turning lights on and off for no reason. You know, just like, you know. She's frugal. She's saving electricity. No, I understand what she's doing. It's 1975. You know, this, here's the thing. We talked last week about how I actually grew up in the same part of suburban Phoenix that Steven Spielberg (laughs) The irony, the great irony is that before my family moved to Phoenix, we didn't live in New Jersey like the the Fablemans. We, We lived in Brussels. I actually like I actually lived in Brussels in 1975. Although to be fair, like we lived in a kind of when I looked on, on the map, it was like a fancy Flemish suburb called Road Saint Genese. Um, and Jean Dielman lives in the center of Brussels. Like that's the I looked at that address. I looked at it on Google Maps, and that's the center of the city. And the neighborhood's become uh, much more gentrified since then. Uh, I, I looked at the Google Street View, but uh, you know. Back in the day, in 1975, that's a very working, not working class, like middle class neighborhood. It's very drab. The whole movie's so drab. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, I think there's a bunch of contradictions that I always find with this movie. Everybody talks about how it is, you know, this experiential real-time film. Well, it's not a real-time film. It's a film that has long scenes and long takes. But it takes place over three days, and it's three and a half hours long. So it's not a real-time film, or else it would be three days long, right? It felt three days long at points. Well, of course, yes. It's subverting your expectations of what a film should be and film language. And and I think there's validity there and and, uh, value there. I mean, I think that's – I like the movie. I appreciate the movie, and I respect it more than I actually love watching it or experiencing it. It is – very much a conversation piece. It's the kind of thing that people talk about more than they actually see. And they enjoy the conversation about it more than they actually enjoy the experience of watching it. I think I have been reading, you know, people talk about, you know, the glorious tedium of the slow cinema of Jean Dielman and how much they enjoy it and how you have to meet the film on its terms and, you know, get into its rhythms. There are many different uh, filmmakers who, who, who kind of, uh, taken taken the the um, the baton from Chantal Ackerman, certainly from 1975. This was a pioneering slow cinema film, and since then you've had, you know, people like yeah, most recently uh, somebody like Achipat Dongwira Sekatol, the uh, the Thai filmmaker, 
who's made some wonderful movies, but you know, they're very slow. Um, Simon Liang is another, you know, an Asian filmmaker who's, they tend to be Asian, the filmmakers who really use I a lot of, uh, I don't need my cinema or Hungarian, right? Bellatar. Yeah. I don't, I don't need my cinema to be fast necessarily. Although I do like a, someone throwing a bus yeah. through a building or an octopus playing drums. I'll, I'll admit it. I'm a boy in certain ways. No, but <laughs> you know what I, what I found about the discourse surrounding, there's been a lot of discourse since this came out and people are like, well, you, you know, you couldn't possibly understand it as a male critic. You know, this is about the tedium of woman's work and the uh, choices available to women. And I'm like, true, but this movie takes place 50 years ago, you know? Well, exactly. It's, it's a sentimental critique, right? It's a sentimental view of a feminist vision, you know, because women yeah. do have choices other than housework. Like this is, this is nostalgia for a certain type of there was a, depression. Yes, there was a piece in the Boston Globe that was like, I did housework while watching Jean Dielman, and it was revelatory. <laughs> like, okay, Jean Dielman didn't have any appliances in her, her shitty little gray, brown, and green Brussels flat. You know, she didn't, she didn't have a TV. She wasn't watching anything while doing her housework. She wasn't listening to anything. Um, you know, she couldn't order dinner from Hello Fresh. You know, she had to. She, she had. She went to. There's. There's a scene, a montage where she goes to four different stores to try to find a button for her son's coat. And I'm like, yeah. it, to me, it was like we're. I was watching like a Moldovan peasant milking the goats. You know, it was like it wasn't. <laughs> you know, it's not. It's not like. You know, and then in addition to pay for this glamorous lifestyle, she has to prostitute herself <laughs> you know he's john's come well and that's the other I, I feel like that's the other contradiction in in the way that people talk about this movie because they're like oh it's a it's it's a it's it's not the male gaze it's subverting all these male oriented tropes of filmmaking and storytelling well hey guess what this movie has sex and violence just as much as men enjoy putting sex and violence in their movies you know what i mean so unless you were you're being ironic about it and i don't think you are at all chantal May you rest in peace. She she took her own life a few years ago. Um, you know, I I this still has to lean on some of the tropes that it is decrying. You know, and so is it still brilliant because of that? I think it's somewhat compromised because of that. Also, to your point, people nowadays, especially if you're watching this, you're not appreciating it in slow cinema unless you're actually in a movie theater that's dark and has the you know doors closed and you have your phone off and you're doing nothing but concentrating and living in that moment with her. Otherwise, you're, you're, you're a bypasser. You know what I mean? Like you're not actually experiencing the movie the way that Chantal Ackman would want you to or presume that you would experience this film. So I just also think whatever people stumbled upon this thing in 1975, I can only, I can only imagine, well, these were people who were attuned to sitting there watching eight hour movies of the Empire State Building so art house audiences in 1975 may have had better attention spans than people now, but you know, they were watching. A well, I mean, we all, we all had better attention spans in 1975 than people now, right? Uh, like I, we weren't as distracted. I, was I was five. So I would say my attention span is about the same. Um, <laughs> I, still, like, I, I still play with toy dinosaurs uh, while, while I watch well, movies. But you know, it was an analog world. It was an analog world. They were less yeah, distracted. For sure. And, 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 you know, so in 1975, there was a documentary vibe about this, you know. Now, mm, yeah. it's not a documentary vibe. You, you might as well 
be you know, be watching you know a silent movie from the twenties. You know, it is a bygone era of like, you know, widows from the World War II era who are shopping at local stores and who have no options and who have no identity. Well, and, and also who uh, apparently get completely uh, uh, thrown off balance when they actually enjoy uh, physical love, you know, or not love, but when they have... They, she connects basically. That's sorry, sorry, dude. Spoiler alert. You know the thing that really throws her off her rhythm is that she has an orgasm. Well, and so I think she, she experiences I, female pleasure. I yes. that's one theory. I, well, I think she kills the guy at the end because he he pulls her sex towel off the bed and gets his dirty, <laughs> and gets his dirty butt on her hideous green bedspread that she so loves fluffing. And I'm like, I'm like that thing is a piece of shit. Doesn't even look warm. I'm like, sorry. Well, look, I mean, you know what, though? It's funny. Uh, you know, this is another thing that's kind of bugged me about, irked me about the Sight and Sound poll, which I, I love Sight and Sound. And I love that they have a poll. And I love that. Did you, you vote know, in the movies poll? that? No. I think it's great that Citizen Kane is not number one anymore. It would make no sense that it would remain number one. You know, it should be dethroned. But I thought it was very interesting that Citizen Kane was dethroned by Vertigo for the simple reason that. Citizen Kane is a is a biopic about it's a very outwardly looking film. It's a great man uh, story, right? About someone who imposes his will on the masses, you know. And Vertigo is an inward looking film about a man who gets obsessed over a woman, right? And it's it's very solipsistic. It's very unaristic. It is uh, completely. It's about the male gaze. It's about someone looking at something instead of someone imposing their will upon, you know, a great many other people because of their childhood shortcomings or hangups, you know? So I thought that was very arresting when that happened. Um, now looking at it, they're both completely chauvinistic films, right? And so I think it's kind of brilliant that Chantal Ackerman's film is number one, because here's a movie that is about the female gaze and about the female experience. And it's made entirely with a female crew. And in fact, because Chantal Ackerman apparently was only, did you read this, is only five feet tall, the camera is put at her height. And so it is slightly shorter than what we're used to seeing. So it is literally the female gaze, which I think is kind of brilliant. Um, so there are a lot of things that I think are wonderful about this being chosen as the number one film. But uh, it does smack a bit of uh, maybe just it's very in vogue right now to be well and also uh, i mean look this is a brilliant film i mean there's no question about it we can't you can't you know just from a just from a technical uh perspective but you can't you can't argue that for anyone who makes fun of art house films um, a three and a half hour movie that features extended scenes of a woman peeling potatoes making a meatloaf doing dishes and has very little dialogue and the dialogue that it does have is in french and also she's a prostitute. It's like it's like every American's stereotype of what a foreign film is. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And absolutely. so and so it's just funny given what popular tastes actually are, which runs towards, you know, people throwing buses through buildings, um, that this is the greatest film of all time. Because I just I mean, it's 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 just I, I couldn't ask for a, a, a wider gap between what critics like and what 
non-critics like. I Although, completely agree. I, you know, and I, I, I the way that they chose Vertigo, I was yeah. like, these. This is clearly the choice of people who sit in a room and stare at something instead of people who are out in the world engaged. You know, of course you're going to pick Vertigo over Citizen Kane, and of course because you're majority uh, male in this field, you know, dominated at least for for uh, far too long. They're going to pick a male-dominated story about the male gaze, you know, yeah. about so obsession, sure. about male obsession. So there are more female That's voters. Kind of dumb. There are more female. There are more female voters. More huh? people of color. I mean, you know, like in the mood for love, kind of broke into the top ten, which I think surprised uh, a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I think the other big thing too, and I think this is really interesting and, and, and in a good way. Uh, my understanding of the poll is that it was basically a top ten list for many, many decades, every decade. Um, but only recently, I think, you know, the last time in 2012, they actually had a, a top 100 list and then the top 10 was the focus of debate. But that top 100 list suddenly allowed other people to see, okay, what are the up and coming one? What are the other, what are the other choices that you made? What's number 36? What's number 58? And I think movies like John Dealman suddenly entered the conversation in a way that they hadn't before. Um, and I think that helped shake up. Um, the order of things. Also, let's admit it, all lists are stupid. I mean, all lists are stupid. Well, no way to, to really evaluate everything objectively. Because my top three movies of all time are The Right Stuff, The Untouchables, and Top Secret. And, and I didn't see those <laughs> anywhere. Anywhere. <laughs> the three greatest movies ever made. Maybe Sunset Boulevard. And there you go. That's all you need. Well, I mean, you know, it's like Desert Island Discs. I think what's beautiful about that is, you know, like, it, it's Sure, you tell people, like, these are the best movies of all time, but then what are the movies that you are going to take with you to a remote island? You know, I mean, they're going to be the ones that you can you want to watch again and again and again, and which you quote and which you love, you know, and so I think that's much more revealing. John Dielman is, is not going to be one of those. Is John Dielman a better movie than, say, Happy Gilmore? Yes. Yeah. But which one, <laughs> but which, which one are you going to watch when it comes on cable? <laughs> you don't even have cable anymore if it shows up in your anyway uh, anyway we could go I, on it's, it's it's an interesting thing i think it like you're saying you know it's it's an unfortunate symptom of uh an era where uh film critics seem to uh be more and more out of touch you know and and more and more inward navel gazing uh inwardly gazing um staring at a woman who's staring off into the distance on a screen like John Dielman, you know, um, it's, it's, it's an odd choice. And I think it's one where it, you, they just kind of remove themselves from the conversation and from reality when they, when they choose seriously, deeply esoteric films like this, which, which are incredibly groundbreaking. I don't get me wrong, but it is reality. All time. It is reality. The reality on the film. Alpine is uh, this French accent is terrible. Anyway, le cinéma c'est new. Le cinéma c'est new. Jean Dielman, twenty three or vingt et trois, gay du commerce, ten eighty. I'm not going to say that in in French. Bruxelles is the greatest film of all time. Uh, we cover un film magnifique, magnifique, un film magnifique. We cover it on Book and Film Globe. Stephen Garrett. Um, I guess you got to get back to. Um, Peeling, peeling those potatoes. They don't. They're, They're making me love tonight. You know, <laughs> having sex. Slops, slop some bread in there. Some eggs. Soak those. <laughs> and make that coffee. Twenty-five minutes standing there. 
covered in covered in the blood of a man you just stabbed. Make some coffee. <laughs> hey, man, I'm all open to alternative uh, ways of telling stories, and this does that, and it's and, and it it in a way that it hadn't happened before. You know, sure. So God bless. Hats off. You know. Yes. Hats off. Say. Hats off to the late Chantel Ackerman. She's made the greatest film of all time. When she was 25, just like uh, you know, Citizen Kane, right? So, uh, all right, so 2032, the next poll's gonna come out, we'll still be alive, and, and I'm confident that the top movie of all time at that point will be Aquaman. Or, or it'll be Avatar 2, who knows? Yeah, apparently, if early reviews are to be believed. We'll talk about that soon. Steven, Abiento. Okay. We'll take Abiento. any little break. Talk to you later. We are now in the era of the Adams Family Extended Universe. No longer are we just making and remaking the Adams Family or the Adams Family values. We now are taking the Adams Family story into new realms, into new storylines, and that that is happening on Netflix on the very popular show Wednesday, which is the story basically of Wednesday Adams, the most popular character from the Adams Family. I have not uh, watched this show. I, I cannot, uh, I can no longer um, handle anything involved that Tim Burton is involved with. Uh, I, late era Tim Burton is just truly one of the worst things to ever happen to popular culture. Uh, but Paula Schaefer endured it and she watched Wednesday and she's here to talk to me about this very popular show. Hello, Paula. Hey, yeah, Wednesday is a show that exists and it is very popular like the third most watched English language show on Netflix ever already, somehow? After only, uh, well, Dahmer, and what was the other one? Uh, Stranger, Stranger Things is number Stranger one. Things. Sorry, well, that, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's quite a testament. I think that a lot of the audience for this show is tweens or early teens, right? I mean, this is not, it's not yeah. really a show for grown-up people. I, I think that a lot of the audience has ne not really seen a Tim Burton movie in a long time, or like they're not aware of Tim Burton, so they're not tired of him yet. So it seems like a new and different thing when, for those of us who have been watching Tim Burton since way back, it's like, oh, this looks like everything else he's ever done. So I think it feels fresh. I mean, I, I can't remember the last time I saw a Tim Burton movie and I just wasn't completely... Oh at least underwhelmed, if not completely depressed by the end of it. You know, I just, I leave every experience thinking, God, that was horrible. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pee-wee's Pee -wee's Big Adventure, wonderful experience, left you feeling good. Other yeah. than that, you Beatles, know. Beetlejuice was 1984 or three or I don't know, five, maybe. I don't know what year it came out, but a long time ago. Yeah. And, and, and th those were the good old days. And and now, you know, Wednesday, it looks pretty. It looks gothic. It has excellent costumes and wonderful production design. And like a Tim Burton-touched product, it doesn't have a lot of substance. And then the flesh peels off my bones. I act as if I don't care if people dislike me. Deep down, I actually enjoy it. There's just something wrong about this place. 
Not just because it's a school. Secret societies, hidden libraries. Well, here's the thing about the Adams family, right? It was, as you pointed out in your review on Book and Film Globe, it was, well, first of all, it, it comes from Charles Adams cartoons in the New Yorker uh, that were, you know, sort of like, they were like an American version of Edward Gorey, right? They were kind of making fun of monsters and, and then the, but the Adams family TV show came out around the same time as the monsters and they were making gentle fun of um, the American nuclear family uh, in the time, to- in their time, you know, and now there is no such thing as the American nuclear family. It, it, uh, it has been uh, nuked as it were, by many forces in the culture. So like it, so that doesn't make any sense anymore. And I don't know, the Adams Family movies, when, when did those come out? The 90s, early 2000s? You know, those, those, were, those were pretty good. You know, they're, they're quite iconic. Uh, you know, Christina Ricci, the Christina Ricci scene at the camp where she subverts the Thanksgiving play is one of the great comic set pieces in all of American movies, you know? Um, so I don't know exactly what those shows were getting at, but they were fun, and they also produced a great pinball game. <laughs> That's true. That That is an excellent pinball machine. Love that pinball game. But, yeah, so it's like, you know, and then I, I have not um, been tuned into the sort of recent genre of Adam's Family uh, animated films. I don't know if you've seen any of those. Um, no, but there are a couple of them. Yeah. But I get the sense that those are sort of along the lines of, uh, of the of the uh, live action movies, you know, they're sort of set in a house with a walking hand and a wacky butler and Uncle Fester and you know all kinds of shenanigans with trapdoors and stuff, you know, stuff that you know the Mazurka or whatever stuff that was fun about the Adams Family franchise. But Wednesday uh, takes all of that and just uh, and hides it. It takes that and it puts her in a boarding school full of monsters. Mm. And the thing about the Adams family is that they are kind of the the subversive creatures, and they don't know it, or they know it and they don't care. It's kind of you know a, a line of which which side that is. But taking the Wednesday character because she's too like naughty for public school because she tries to kill a bunch of swim team members with piranhas um, when they tease her brother. And then she goes to this magical, mystical school like Hogwarts, but for werewolves. It, it was done in the CW series Legacies a couple years ago. Sounds, and, well, first of all, all you had to say was werewolves. And I'm like, I'm not watching that. Werewolves <laughs> are real? Werewolves are real and vampires and all the things. Yeah, and creatures. they're frightening. They're very frightening. So why would I want to watch something with, with werewolves in it? Also, like, I mean, didn't they also kind of play that like gothic teen horror thing in the Sabrina, the Teenage Witch remake, the one with Kieran Shipka? I mean, doesn't that kind of have a similar vibe? Yes, it kind of reminds that as well. It's it's not. I watched Wednesday. I was excited. I thought this could be fun. It'll look great because Tim Burton did it, but he doesn't like the whole series. Isn't his concept or anything? Some. Other people had their hands in it, and okay, so it looked great because Tim Burton was going to be directing some of it, but it wasn't all his to control. So I thought maybe this will be fun. It'll look good. It'll be fun, and yeah, it it looks good. It it was not fun. It's very serious about itself. I just don't understand why an Adams Family 
spinoff, essentially, would take itself seriously. Again, what was good just about the Adams Family, if there is anything good about the Adams Family, is that it was a comedy. You know, it was a it was a it was a monster comedy. It was like the Monster Mash, you know, and uh, and and suddenly everything has to um, I don't know have to has to have some sort of serious point. I mean, what 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 is the driving force behind the show? So there are several mysteries. There's a monster in town that's killing people. There's a shapeshifter. There's some mystery of Wednesday's father possibly being a murderer back from when he was in high school at this boarding school. Um, It goes on and on. There are a whole bunch of mysteries. Um, And so Wednesday wants to solve them. It's like Riverdale. Yes, it is. It is a lot like Riverdale. I mean, Riverdale was fine for you know at the beginning. It's like it's take let's take the Archie comics and turn them into a, a supernatural teen soap opera, basically. But you know that that got pretty tiresome toward the end as well. Yeah, it and the thing that really bothered me about Wednesday is. Like, Jenna Ortega is an amazing actress. She stands very still. She doesn't blink. It's She's, like, nailed the character. Christina Ricci is there. And she... It kind of took away from Yellow Jackets for me because Christina Ricci seemed to be doing the same character she did in Yellow Jackets. And so I was less impressed retroactively with her performance there by her role in Wednesday, which was kind of the same. Um, Maybe she's not an actor with a lot of range, Paula. It's awesome. I know, but but it felt good in Yellow Jackets. <laughs> what are you it felt What are you going to do? She let you down. All right. Well, um, there you have it. There is Wednesday. I mean, nothing Paula and I say about Wednesday is going to keep you from making up your mind about it. I just feel like it's important to chime in and 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 plant our flag in the fact that like something that is a huge phenomenon is not necessarily good or fun. It's okay if it's not good, but I like it to be fun. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Like it should at least have, you know, for something that is so inherently campy, right. From its subject matter, it should be, it should feel campy and there should be moments where, where you're just kind of laughing with glee, even if it's bad and corny. Yes. Exactly. And and the only times that happens, you're not supposed to be laughing. Like when, when somebody shouts about there's no patriarchy in the hive mm. and like is trying to smash oppression in the middle of an action sequence. Like that's yeah, not that, supposed that's to be a, funny. That's a classic line from the old sitcom. <laughs> True. They hated the patriarchy. <laughs> if you, if you, what network was it on? They hated the patriarchy from ABC. Absolutely. All right, I'm going to try to snap twice here. Yeah, that worked. Paula, take it easy. (laughs) You may have heard of a little uh, pop culture couple named Harry and Meghan. They're a little obscure. Former royal family members now absconded to America where they are living the quiet life of other celebrity. Uh, they are pretty much on everyone's everyone's uh, naughty list for this holiday season. And now Harry and Meghan are, are here to stay on Netflix with uh, part one 
of a documentary series uh, about their their plight as disgraced chosen disgraced former royals who are now trying to make it in LA as reality show stars basically I have not seen Harry and Meghan but Matthew Ehrlich has and he is here to talk to me about this this program hello Matthew hey Neil yes so what do we got here with Harry and Meghan I, again I, I have not and I don't think I can see it personally when Harry and Meghan left the royal family, uh, also an action known as Brexit, um, or sorry, Megxit, um, essentially what they did was they have basically um, they have basically kind of um, said no to an income that comes in, and then also no to a, cer- a certain amount of security protection that they enjoy being royals. And so essentially they've been put into a position of wanting to make money. And Megan has made money in the past. She's an actress um, and she's, you know, not a bad actress. Um, she's quite attractive, but she's gotten too famous to be on a show at this point. Um, and Harry is not exactly someone who could get a job at this point. So the thing that they're trying to monetize is the fact that there's a lot of interest in them. And although I think Netflix was very eager to have them in their employ back a couple of years ago when they were incredibly, you know, hot and very much um, the object of public obsession. But now I think that it looks as though Netflix is possibly not as thrilled uh, with having them. And there are reports that apparently they have um, the initial ask the, 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 um, of content that they gave them. Um, they were going to develop a, a series of series and some of them have not really come to fruition. And Netflix has kind of said, that's fine with us. We don't really want to you know, produce these things anyway. But one of the things that they were hoping that they could make money off of is this documentary that just aired uh, on Thursday called Harry and Meghan. And it's essentially their side of the story um, and it unfortunately is not exactly, um, it's, it, for one thing, it's not doing very well. Um, and it is not really doing what they, I mean, maybe it is doing something for them, but it does not seem to be uh, endearing them into the hearts of people as they'd hoped. I think they thought that if they were able to tell their own story, that everyone would go, oh, yeah, okay. Um, but I think that there's a sense that, um, you know, there is, I mean, you know, it must suck to be a member of the royal family, um, to be under that much of a microscope. And especially if you, you marry into the royal family and you're not used to the way things play out. And you're not white. Exactly. Yes. Um, I'm sure some racist, very racist things happened to her. I'm sure that the press had a field day with her, as they do with many women who marry into that family um, of any race. Um and I'm sure that it was incredibly painful for her, but there's a sense that we've heard her story already on Oprah, um, and now we're kind of like, okay, so we need we need to hear it again. And who are you again? And um, there's just something about this. And then it's very there's something about her that feels very inauthentic. She's giving too much information about everything, and one of the things that I feel makes the royals so. Um, and I admit to being a bit of a royal file. Um, I watch The Crown. Um, I do, my ears perk up when I hear gossip about the royal family. I understand the allure 
um, that they um, that they exhibit. But I also they are a ridiculous institution. And at some point, she really is just a woman who married into this family and had a bad time. Um, and this documentary is trying to draw these conclusions or these parallels between the Black Lives Matter movement and what Megan endured as the biracial wife of the of of Harry, uh, the prince. Right, um, this, 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 and it's not. I mean, it's it's the throne of England. Exactly. I mean, and it's not. It's not as though she's not making an argument that's worthwhile about systemic racism, but it's kind of like, really, this has something to do with Black Lives Matter. It's not a very good look for them, um, and it's just, um, you know, it's it's hard to feel any sympathy for them. They live in this wonderful mansion in Montecito, California. Um, they have. You know, everything is, you know, they have, they take a lot of photos of themselves and take a lot of videos of themselves and they're all like lush and lovely. Um, and the fact that they at one point had a bad experience with her in-laws, um, I sympathize, but the, you know, like after some time has passed, I'm not really all that interested in hearing any of this anymore. I would really much rather see a documentary made by someone who, has a more balanced viewpoint of the whole city. Yeah. Also the idea that their path, their only path out of um, Royal life is as content creators for Netflix is quite funny. I mean, they're not Ryan Murphy or Shonda Rhimes or even uh, the Obamas who are using Netflix as one of the pillars of their post-presidential empire. I mean, at least the Obamas had a history of um, at least exhibiting interest in culture in, in <laughs> documentaries and in books, you know, I mean, they, they, it makes some sense to give Barack and Michelle Obama um, a, a little bit of a producing rope, you know, that you, you think they might have the connections for it. It's just, I, I can't even imagine like what content are Harry and Megan going to come up with for Netflix that could possibly be of use or of interest. We are on the freedom flight. <laughs> to see this institutional gaslighting. But I wasn't being thrown to the wolves, I was being fed to the wolves. They were actively recruiting people to disseminate disinformation. They were happy to lie to protect my brother. They were never willing to tell the truth to protect us. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. The rogue royals. They just wanted to be free. They wanted to be free to love and be happy. I applauded that. In order for us to be able to move to the next chapter, you've got to finish the first chapter. It almost seems as though someone was at a dinner, they were there, and was just like, you know, an executive of Netflix, and they said, oh my God, I just sat next to Harry and Meghan at dinner, and guess what? They're interested in a deal. And everyone kind of went, oh, and then all of a sudden the thing was sort of, you know, inked, and... Then, like a couple months later, everyone was like, "What have we just done?" You know, like that. Like there was, I think, around the time of the marriage, and even when they left, and during the Oprah interview, there was a lot of interest in them, and there was a lot of sympathy for Meghan, um, and a lot of also hatred towards her, which is also you know kind of brings in the ratings as well. Um, but you know, it's just not. Uh, apparently, this uh, this documentary has not even cracked the top ten. 
And this was supposed to be the crown jewel of the, so to speak, of all the content that they were bringing forth. I mean, there must be something really wrong with it if they are somehow becoming more and more villainous over time, given the fact that, like, they, you know, they should not be. I mean, given given who their, their main antagonists are. Are there any moments in the documentary that uh, you spotlighted as particularly cringy? Yeah, so there's this... A lot of her, a lot of the things that she says in these voiceovers and in these, you know, one-on-one they, interviews. They narrates it, is what you're saying. They narrate it. It's their story. And it's kind of like, the, the, you know, it's based on this principle that, you know, how they say that, like, rather than, you know, like celebrities no longer rely on paparazzi photos to get their image out there. They're doing their own thing by going on Instagram and telling their own story. And so this whole thing has this, well, this is our story. This is our point of view. Uh, and therefore, this should be interesting to you because this is our story. They keep saying story. They keep saying truth. There's a lot of, you know, um, you know, there's a lot of that sort of speak going on. Um, so there's this one scene. So a lot of people seem to be cast in, you know, when you're watching a rom-com and there's the friend who has no life other than to come into the scene and say, but you love him, go chase after him, go to that airport, get on that plane. Um, And there seem to be a lot of people in this documentary whose job it is to sort of go, yes, and that's when I noticed that she was falling in love. And there are even people off camera, like she talks about the fact that um, she's about to spend, she gets a week off of suits and she's planning to go travel. And a friend of hers, who never appears on camera, she insists that this friend of hers said this, um, pulls her aside and says, Megan, when you take that week off, make room for some magic. Go see David Copperfield in Vegas. Yeah, right. Uh, Um, And that's when she decides to take Harry up on his invitation to go with her to Africa. Well, it really probably took a lot of of hard thinking there. I know, I know. And they make a really big deal about the fact that when he was interested in her, she was like, I don't know. But then I looked at his Instagram and he had some really interesting pictures of Africa. And one of the myths that they're trying to dispel is that um, there were reports that apparently she was a big big Royals fan, as many people are. um, And she actually had plans to marry Prince Harry and that she orchestrated this whole thing. And, you know, if she did, you know, you go, girl. Um, but apparently this is part of the villain story is that she's a manipulative woman who had ambition. And so a lot of the documentary is her trying to explain, no, 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 we both fell in love. This is a real relationship. I swear this is a real relationship. And then they do these things that are like, um, at one point there's an actress named Abigail Spencer who is her co-star um, on suit and madman yes she played the uh, the school teacher so she is talking about the fact that she is having lunch at bergdorf's with megan and megan tells her that she's seeing prince harry and she's like oh my god and then she goes and i could just tell that she was really happy she was vibrating with happiness oh and look here's a picture that we took that day and then the screen fills with this picture of them wearing sunglasses and smiling as though to say, look, here's proof that she's happy with Prince Harry. And also, like, this isn't like an underground Cinderella story. This is a a rich actress having lunch at Bergdorf 
Goodman in, in Los Angeles. You know, it's like it's like who, how, in what world is she supposed to be a sympathetic character? Well, she is. I mean, she is from. Um... You know, she's from humble beginnings. I do. I don't begrudge her that. I mean, she did sort of make it as an actress, um, yeah. you know, by the skin of her teeth. Um, they, at one point, they talk about the fact that she, before she got her role on Suits, she tried out for lots of things, but she didn't get them. And I'm like, yeah, like every other working actress <laughs> around today. Famously, a suitcase girl. Right. On Would have been a star from the very get-go. This is an example of her suffering. Um and she is very, um, I think one of the things that happened with Diana was that um, when Charles wanted to get married, he was dating a lot of women who were kind of royal adjacent um, and probably would have had a much better time under that microscope because they would have known what it entailed. However, a lot of them had said to him, look, I like you. This is fun dating you, but there's no way that I would ever marry you because the role that I would be asked to play is just beyond imaginable for me and essentially diana married him um although i have a lot of respect for diana i think diana was not this you know the brightest bulb uh and she thought that it would be you know i don't think that she understood what she was getting into and so in a way the people who the royal family marries you know have to be enough outside of the royal family for them to actually think that this is a good idea if you catch my drift and so right, yeah, Megan was kind of prepared. I mean, Megan is very um, talented at being visible. She's very good at um, appearing in advance. She's very good on camera. Um, and one could imagine that in addition to, you know, I, I, don't, I don't entirely disbelieve that Harry was in love with her, but he also probably thought this is someone who could handle being under the media spotlight with me. Um, and this will be. Well, I have a question. I have a question about Harry. Like we talk a lot, of, a lot about Meghan Markle. Harry is kind of a cipher in all this to me. Yeah. Well, he's essentially, you know, he's grown up in the media spotlight. He talks about that. Um, he also he he does mention the fact that he he went to a party dressed as a Nazi, and then he said that um, well, I've spent many years. Um, I forget the word he uses, but he, he essentially atones for that by going to Berlin and speaking to someone who survived the Holocaust. I mean, you know, you imagine that like when someone like Prince Harry fucks up like that, there are, you know, there are consultants hired who go and find the Holocaust survivor to talk to him, to get this all, you know, straightened out. Why did you go to the party dressed like a Nazi? Yeah, exactly. Um, I'm like, yes, okay. And then a black person comes on screen and says, yes, I have spoken to Harry. He is definitely an anti-racist. So there's a lot of cleansing of that, you know, those misdeeds from his past. Um, yeah. And I don't, you know, I, I um, you know, he's got a lot of resentment about the way that the press treated his mother um, and, and resentment about the way the press treated him, um, you know, as a child and as a young adult. Um and well, that's all reasonable. That's all. That's yeah, all reasonable totally, and fair. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's like okay, we're. Just, I just feel like we're relitigating the same court case we've already seen three times. Yeah, here. and it also must be very strange to be the second child in a situation like that. I mean, Princess Margaret was a hot mess, and Prince Andrew is a hot mess. And I think that when you have, um, when you're not being groomed to be king, but you kind of still have to be. 
um, you know, under that hot glare spotlight, it must be kind of maddening. I mean, I wouldn't know personally. <laughs> Neither would I. But you know. not a, not not a not something that uh, I have ever experienced. Although I have had quite a few unpleasant encounters with my mother-in-law. But there's not going to be a, a right. Netflix show about exactly. that. Uh, anyway, uh, Harry and Megan Part One is now airing. Part Two is coming. Sometime soon. Well, the first three, the part one is the first three episodes. And so we've just oh. almost gotten to the wedding. Oh, yeah. we haven't gotten to the wedding yet. <laughs> Jesus. All right. Well, it's there for y'all if you want it on Netflix. Matthew, thank you so much for, uh, thank you for, for having me. It's for always me. a pleasure. Matthew Ehrlich, thank you so much for talking to me about Harry and Megan a docuseries that is on Netflix. Harry and Megan will be with us for the rest of our lives. They're going to outlive us. They're going to outlive me. They're going to outlive you. We're just going to have to deal with them. But at least we have a free country, a free world, a free speech where we can make fun of Harry and Megan. Easy targets that we love to take aim at. Also, thanks to Paula Schaefer for talking to me about Wednesday, now airing on Netflix. And thanks to Stephen Garrett for listening to me rant about Jean Thielman. 1080 Rue de Bruxelles. It's a long title. It is the greatest film of all time, and you should watch it. It is definitely worth a watch, and it is worth your attention and your discussion and your critical perspective. We welcome it all here at Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. I am Neil Pollock. I am your editor-in-chief, I am your podcast host, and I will talk to you soon. You can buy the books discussed on the Book and Film Globe podcast at The Book House, Book and Film Globe's independent bookstore. Go to thebookhousemilburn.com to shop online and support small independent booksellers, or visit our actual physical site in Milburn, New Jersey where you can buy books from all the authors featured on The Dark Word and the Book and Film Globe podcasts, thebookhousemilburn.com.